there are few decades in film history that have been as scrutinized as the 1980s. But to really understand the decade and its movies, it's going to take a couple someones who were there for it the first time around. Drew McQueenie and Scott Weinberg are ready to review every major film of the decade one month at a time. They'll look at what worked then, what endures now, and how it felt to be there when it all went down. Turn back the calendar with us. It's the 80s all over. U.S. minimum wage was raised to $3.35 per hour. A deal was closed to release $8 million in frozen assets in order to secure the release of the 52 U.S. embassy workers still being held hostage in Iran, and they were finally returned home on January 25th. Hill Street Blues made its debut on NBC, and finally, Elijah Wood was born the same day that President Reagan signed an executive order that added all federal price and allocation control on gas and fuel oil. How the hell did anyone find time for movies in January of 1981? Hi, I'm Scott Weinberg, and I'm Drew McQueenie, and welcome to season two of 80s All Over. Holy shit, that's awesome. I love saying that. Welcome to season two. Thank you to all of our listeners. Drew made a joke. We were talking last night, and we, whenever we talk about our patrons, our fans, our listeners, we always both refer to them as readers, and that's because we're both writers. So it's safe to say that anybody who's listening to this podcast has read something by Drew and or myself at least once. And if not, please do. We're actually not bad. Yeah, yeah. He's all right. He's okay. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so we will always refer to you as our readers. Always, always. Although we also now would love to refer to you as patrons. Scott mentioned uh, that word earlier, and I just want to say we have the new Patreon up and running for 80s all Patreon. over. Patreon. We are going to have an ongoing debate over whether it's Patreon or Patreon. I think I'm going to put a GIF at the top of each one of the pages. It's GIF. Hard G starts the word. It's G. How do you pronounce golf? Is it Jolf? No, it's I pronou- golf. I, I pronounce it Patreon. Drew, why don't you tell our <laughs> listeners, uh, aka readers, what they'll get if they um, subscribe to our Patreon page. Well, there, there are three totally different levels. If you come in at the $5 level, then you're an Eddie Deason. Wow. And you know what? Eddie Deason's awesome. There is nothing wrong with being Eddie Deason, but Eddie Deason gets you access to all of our audio content. Now, that's not just the podcast anymore. We are going to start doing bonus episodes, and those bonus episodes are going to consist of several different formats. We're going to start doing full-length feature film commentaries for the films that we've covered already on 80s all over so you guys will be able to download those yes we will also be doing interviews with several iconic 1980s actors screenwriters and hopefully some directors as well yeah i think it's gonna be amazing the the depth of people that we get because already just looking at the people that have said yes right away terrific they're gonna be terrific interviews and i'm really excited some of these people i've never spoken to and i've been waiting literally in some cases 35 to 37 years to have these exact conversations the 12 monthly episodes and i don't mean they come out monthly i mean they cover month of 1981 for example uh, the months of 1981 those and the recap episode which you got last week will always be free of charge always without without question the the Subscribers, however, will get the interviews, the commentaries, and a few other fun ideas that we have for bonus audio content. And I'm prepared right now to make an offer. If we get to $1,000 monthly patronage for the podcast, I will record the very first Film Nerd 2.0 full-length reaction commentary, and you will be able to listen along live as the boys watch an American werewolf in London for the very first time. Are you going to let them know that you're recording or are you going to just put the recorder on like on the coffee table and I'm, let it roll? I'm going to be I'm going to make sure that they understand what's happening. But uh, beforehand, just tell them, look, this is like any other time we watch a movie and we're going to have a great time. And let's and they're so excited already. This movie has been on the stack for a while and they've been working up the nerve. And I think what happened was we had a conversation. They realized that having seen the beginning of Twilight Zone, the movie, they know now what a John Landis jump scare feels like. 
So they're like, if that's what a jump scare in this movie is going to be like, okay, we can do this. We can make it through. So I think they're they're ready and they're super curious. It's going to be great. Let's move on to this month's episode. What else do we got? Say oops upside your head. Say oops upside your head. Say we pulled a boner real quick, and it's not so much a boner this time as it is a Freudian slip. Last time out, uh, when we were talking about Popeye in the December 1980 episode, Scott referred to Punch Drunk Love, directed by Paul W.S. Anderson. Oh, my good God. Yes, well, (laughs) mea culpa. Uh, As everybody knows, Paul Thomas Anderson is the genius behind uh, Boogie Nights and, and Magnolia. Uh, Paul W.S. Anderson is a totally different kind of genius behind Event Horizon and Resident Evil. I I had to listen twice because it was so great. And believe me, you go by it like 70 miles an hour. You never realized you did it. It's great. I, I won. You know what? Another time I will tell the story how thanks to Fantastic Fest, I once had a barbecue lo- dinner with Paul Thomas Anderson and didn't realize it for 15 or 20 minutes into the meal. When you tell that, I'll tell an even better Paul Thomas Anderson story, and we will match them. Believe me, that episode, whenever we get to it, will be well worth tuning in for. Drew, name a movie that came out in January 1981. January 1981 was the month that there was a documentary, and I use that word very loosely, about Nostradamus, narrated by Orson Welles, called The Man Who Saw Tomorrow. What would you do if you thought you knew? the exact day World War III would break out, and who might start it, where it might be fought, and who might be left when it was over. Where would you go? How would you protect your family? Don't miss the incredible predictions of Nostradamus, the man who saw tomorrow, from Warner Brothers, rated PG. Here's why I love this fucking podcast. Mm-hmm. I saw this movie, and I didn't even realize it until I started doing research for this episode. For some reason in my head, I had the man who saw tomorrow is like some Henry Fonda walking across the desert drama that I never saw. And then I did my research and I'm like, guaranteed I saw this on UHF in like 1986 or something. It's a fun relic for those who like to look back at these faux documentaries were very popular in this era in the late 70s and very early 80s. They kind of were passe by 82. It's funny because this guy, even though he didn't work on this show... Man, does this give me an In Search Of vibe. Oh, totally. In Search Of, uh, to those who don't know, was a picture it like uh, Unsolved Mysteries of the time hosted by Leonard Nimoy. It was great. And it, it was it was one of those things where beca- I think because Leonard Nimoy hosted it, that was my way into it. But it was also kind of it fell at that perfect time where I still was willing to believe in Bigfoot or Loch Ness Monster or UFOs or whatever else. And I really ate that show up. It was such a good show. There was like an umbrella over pop culture in like 79 to 81, I want to say 77 to 81. And that that umbrella included Bermuda Triangle, alien abductions, Bigfoot. And then it seemed like everybody's attitude was, sure, why, why not? not? Oh, yeah, what Loch Ness Monster. Why the fuck not? It, it Bigfoot? Exists. Fuck yeah. Bigfoot's out there. But I remember the feeling of watching The Man Who Saw Tomorrow and then going back through it this time. I remember as a kid, the way it would blow your mind when you'd hear about, and then they said this, and through very tenuous connections, look how it came true. And it was always just enough to go, Maybe that is right. You don't need a master filmmaker to tap into the allure of somebody 400 years ago kind of maybe sort of predicted something. That's a creepy idea in and of itself. So here's a great footnote. This guy, the director, Robert Gwinnett, even though I didn't know it, this guy was hugely formative for me because he's the guy who directed making Star Wars, the, the making of the Empire Strikes Back special. Great movie stunts Raiders of the Lost Ark and classic creatures Return of the Jedi, which for those of you who weren't around, those specials were ground zero for my understanding of how filmmaking worked. Those specials were amazing. Would you refer to those in a way as like the the prototypes of what we consider high end special featurettes and whatnot? This guy, for a long time, these specials were the gold standard. They were the ones that were re-released over and over in special packaging with the movies. Um, it's it's funny that I didn't recognize his name until I went and looked at the list, but he had his hand on so much of that stuff and was obviously ground zero for a really exciting moment in filmmaking. He was on those sets and got to see all that stuff. 
Okay, so we're moving on. And our next one, Scott, is yours to set up. Please do it. There's not much to say. This is an earnest, well-intentioned, kind of dull family film about a Native American. Trevor Howard plays the Wind Walker. And uh, it kind of follows his life via flashbacks and whatnot. His son had been had been abducted, and then it's very dry and and sincere, and it's not very eventful. I, I respect it because it has actual Native American dialogue, and for the most part, aside from Trevor Howard, mostly Native American actors. It seems to come from a very sincere place, and some of the exterior photography is beautiful. But it's just sort of a sluggish and inert narrative. Keith Merrill, the guy who directed it, has gone on to a long career in sort of Christian faith-based movies. And that's that's clearly where Windwalker was kind of meant to be. It is shot entirely in Cheyenne and Crow, Native American languages, and is ahead of the curve of what things like Dances with Wolves tried to do. It's interesting because there's no white characters in this. This isn't a movie about the white man then running into Native American culture. Uh, which makes it weird that they did cast Trevor Howard and uh, James Remar as the two different ages of Windwalker. I don't really understand that choice. And I think this was that era. We're going to deal with this a lot as we go through this podcast. Uh, this era was still where there were crazy decisions made about racial casting, about how race was approached on film, about who got to play what roles. There's one coming up in our February podcast that I am still shaking my head about i still don't understand what i looked at but those choices were just the way business happened back then so we have to start from the pov of all right this is a problem it's really problematic and we would never do it like this today but how's the movie and as a movie i i like that you use the word respect because that's what i wrote down i wrote this is a film that i respect way more than i like it i kind of like the story that's being told here and what i really like is that it draws on actual Native American folklore to try and create the sort of fantasy mythology that they're playing with. It's not much of a fantasy film. I almost wish that they had cranked that up a little and done, you know, what a lot of Western filmmaking is, which you take that as the foundation and amp it up. Because I think there's something in Windwalker and in the story that's being told that's kind of interesting. And it's not a bad film. That earnestness eventually does kind of overwhelm it. And there comes a point where you to an extent, you almost just wanted to calm down because there is some confidence about what they're doing. They just don't stick it. This is a, a production from Pacific International Enterprises, was uh, responsible for several family-oriented films, most notably, I suppose, the Wilderness Family Trilogy. You know, it's funny because a lot of what we're going to cover in this month and next month, independent films, but it was a very different world for independent film back then. It wasn't like it is now where indies are kind of mini-majors and they have just as much distribution muscle as the majors did. This stuff would trickle into theaters and they would make like 35 prints and they would run around the country with them. And you didn't necessarily get to see this at the exact moment that we're going to be covering it. But this is when it began its trip around the country. And these little companies, especially for stuff like Manu Sotomaro or or Windwalker, they'd be really dependent on smaller theaters that would take this stuff and play it because they just needed product. Yeah, you got to remember, uh, dear readers. At this era, there were, of course, the multiplexes, but mom and pop and privately owned local theaters, people who own three or four theaters in, in a city, those were much more common. And if you were to be able to get, say, any which way you can in its fourth or fifth week of release, or for about the same price, you could get Windwalker opening weekend. Hey, I get Windwalker. I don't know if anybody will care, but that's at least new. Um, all right, we're going to move on in this next one. Our next one is a wide release studio comedy starring a beloved actress we all love. While Drew and I very often agree on films, on this film, we vehemently disagree. Um, I love Jane Wagner, and I love Lily Tomlin. And I love Jane Wagner and Lily Tomlin working together. But The Incredible Shrinking Woman is a fucking hate crime. This is the story of Pat Kramer, a woman suffering from the heartbreak of shrinkage. We've got it. You are shrinking. Oh, God. No need to be upset, Mrs. Kramer. As long as you have on this ring, nothing's changed between us. Pat's not quite herself these days. Ah! Ah! Uh, she has this little problem that keeps getting littler. You might even call it an identity crisis. No one could find her. Ah! 
Lily Tomlin is the incredible shrinking woman. Here's why it bothers me. A, one of the best pieces of source material anybody's ever had. It infuriates me that not only did they not do as good a job as the first adaptation, but there are two totally different films at work here. One film, the one that Jane Wagner probably wrote and that Lily Tomlin had in her head, is not bad. And it's like Lily Tomlin is standing about three feet from you, trying to explain that movie to you quietly and rationally. And at the exact same time, Joel Schumacher is standing six inches from you, screaming at you and whacking you with a piece of formica. Joel Schumacher, a costume designer who was enlisted to be the director after John Landis left the project. It was his first directorial effort. It's easy to knock Joel Schumacher, especially because this film is so... I knock Joel Schumacher because he has legitimately horrifying fucking taste as a filmmaker. I hate Joel Schumacher's movies. I think they are uniformly ugly. And more than that, I hate the sound of this movie. Before you get into the sound design of a 1981 farce. <laughs> Why don't we tell everybody, for those who don't know, The Incredible Shrinking Woman is a comedic retelling of Richard Matheson's classic story, which was told in a brilliant film in 1957. Uh, allegedly comedic. Com- allegedly comedic. Sorry, ostensibly comedic. I'd prefer to use that word if we want to split adverbs. Ostensibly a comedic retelling of a classic tale about a woman who, thanks to a collection of, of household chemicals being combined, finds herself shrinking, shrinking, shrinking ever so uh, gradually uh, throughout the film and woe all the wackiness that ensues. Now, continue, Drew, with your missive on its sound design. Sound design is the least of this movie's problems, but it's a good example of what's wrong with it. Because this movie, you listen to this movie, turn the image off, just put the movie on, turn away from it. Here's what you're going to hear for two hours. It is a hodgepodge of horrible noise and people screaming and yelling and there's not one scene in this movie that plays out like a scene i'll give you that the tone is constantly manic where it should be pitched at a more even keel i'll give I you really that i really do i hate manic for i hate manic when it is done by filmmakers who have no control over it this is a movie where i honestly think and Look, we could talk all day about, say, Steven Spielberg and the way he took Robert Altman's kind of lead and then moved that into the suburban milieu and started figuring out, ah, if I shoot this where kids are talking over each other and there's stuff going on in the room and adults are having a conversation and there's four levels of sound happening, that's reality. That's what chaos actually sounds like in a house. Spielberg, when you listen to the way he does it in whether it's Jaws or... Close Encounters. You, you or, can't compare Altman and Spielberg to Joel Schumacher. I'm talking about approach. I'm t- And I'm talking about the fact that clearly that informed the way everybody started trying to shoot domestic stuff. And in this movie, you see it. You see that attempt to, okay, we're going to put all the kids around the table and Charles Grodin's going to have this conversation and Lily's going to have this conversation. It's going to go on. But instead of creating the authentic chaos of domestic life, what you have is this fucking barrage of empty sound and none of it lands and as a result none of the scenes play there's not a scene in this movie that has a beginning a middle and an end with a thematic point the thematic point is that galaxy glue will f you up and get you stuck in a garbage disposal except they don't really land that it could be anything and they they make sure they never answer what it is and they never really even try to get into the science the science is a joke oh it's, come on man it's a farce it's like it's like but so what i i've seen plenty of great comedies that still work as movies and this doesn't work as anything it's a sitcom version of madison it's all not- right i think that's a horrifying choice and i think the material doesn't work at all as a farce or as a sitcom and certainly there's no laughs to make up for the fact that the story doesn't work. There are laughs. I don't think there's any laughs. And I literally, I watched If you criticize I, this movie one more time, I'm quitting this podcast in January 1981, and we're done. This movie is photographed like someone wiped their dick on the camera lens. All right. You know what, though? Will you give it at least some credit for trying to do the hyper stylized suburbia prior to Tim Burton kind of mastering that hyper stylized suburbia in, say, Edward Scissorhands? 
Okay, so they managed to capture a really ugly, vivid hue. But like, I look at how they try to include, say, Lily Tomlin's other characters, and they try to work in ways for her to play the neighbor and the the telephone operator. Not one of those adds anything to the movie. Her playing the neighbor doesn't inform anything, and it doesn't add anything. Her playing the telephone operator isn't funny. It's not a good cutaway. And Charles Grodin, who we both have declared that we love Charles Grodin. He's a genius. He Without is question. lost here. I, I get that the movie's about her, which is great, because she's the Lily frickin' Tomlin, but Groden, he can save a bad movie when he's either allowed to be a, a little loose or he's given some good material and he's just mainly the very dry straight man here and that's no good. But Lily Tomlin makes me laugh. So I'm assuming that you don't like the film once it devolves into Mark Freak over the top cokehead Blankfield. You mean and, when there's a know, gorilla on a skateboard flipping the bird? No, n- not a fan. Rick Baker in the gorilla suit on it with, with the invisible with the shrinking woman around his collar. Okay. Okay. I admire Rick Baker. It doesn't make me like this movie. Even I, I, no, I don't like any movie that has a gorilla in act three. I when in a couple of years. We'll get to trading places. I, I adore trading places. And that garbage with the gorilla in act three is so terrible. And I think they kind of got it from this movie. Why do you need? I mean, I get it. It's a family comedy. So you want to have. Oh, and that's such an old thing. By this point, you're talking about like the little rascals and three stooges or where the dude in the gorilla suit was at its heyday. So it is by this point, a very strange choice in in mainstream comedy. You and I are going to fundamentally disagree on this. I I find incredible shrinking woman off putting from frame one and genuinely ugly. I, I would call it highly flawed. For a silly comedy, it also does kind of try and take some fun swipes at consumerism and and the proliferation of commercial culture. And I, I kind of like that looking back at it now. It's a very limp swipe. But if you love Lily Tomlin, you you know, she hasn't done that many starring roles. So I would say this one's worth digging up. You'll cringe at a lot of the jokes, but some of them are pretty funny, too. So now we move from um, a film that I would call highly imperfect, but certainly still watchable, to a film that's a 1981 non-cult classic, but favorite to some horror geeks, I suppose, like myself. And it's known as Blood Beach. The California coast, playground of America, until something deep beneath the sand turned it into Blood Beach. The water may be the safest place to be. Rated R. Prior to doing uh, your your homework for this episode, what, if anything, did you know of Jeffrey Bloom's Blood Beach? The thing that I remember distinctly, that poster is a home run. Great exploitation poster. It, it is a poster of a uh, young blonde woman halfway devoured by the beach with her arms splayed akimbo and shrieking as if something below the sand is devouring her in painful fashion. And the tagline, well, there's that one because there's the two. The two are the five people believed to have drowned have never even made it past the sand. And then clearly the genius was the guy who said, "Uh, what about Jaws, man? Because just when you thought it was safe to go back in the water, you can't get to it is a super winner of a tag. Drew, the highlight of the film for B-movie fanatics is, of course, the cast. The plot is basically a cop reluctantly starts to look into a series of missing persons and nobody is sure where these people are vanishing to is it a killer is it a drug epidemic is it perhaps poor swimming skills yeah this is and it's littered with uh familiar faces and sort of b-movie faces john saxon one of the kings of crazy genre films i remember we were at an event for Shaun of the Dead, and it was the the Hollywood premiere of it. And then afterwards, there was a party, and a lot of familiar filmmaker faces showed up. And it was sort of Edgar Wright's coming out party in Los Angeles. Word had gotten out that he was the next big thing. And so a lot of filmmakers showed up, including at one point, Quentin Tarantino. And Tarantino standing in the uh, middle of the party, and somebody mentioned an actor who was coming into the room. Tarantino misheard the name turned around, got on a table, and went, Did someone say John Saxon is here? The room stops. No, did you, did you mean, and they said whatever the real name was, it looked like Tarantino was going to cry. 
Like he was so excited John Saxon was going to be in the room. And I get it. Saxon's one of those guys who, as soon as you see him, you think of 50 roles that you've seen him in and loved him in. It's not just that John Saxon was in a lot of fun, cheesy movies. It's that when John Saxon took a role, he sunk his freaking teeth into it. There was no, oh, this thing, this role is beneath me, so I'll mumble through it. No. If John Saxon took your role, whether you were a mid-range action film or a super low-budget exorcism film, John Saxon thought he was Olivier, and God bless him for it because he made a lot of crappy movies a lot more watchable. I agree with that, and I think look, I think that's a huge part of what makes uh, good exploitation is people who are not embarrassed by the genre or embarrassed by what they're doing, and who give it that same one hundred percent approach. You know, I, I joke sometimes because Burt Young is in this movie, and I joke that he's basically a human skid mark. <laughs> he's very sleazy in this movie. I'm sure in real life, I'm sure Burt Young was very, very clean and sweet. And the fact that he's worked as long as he has says volumes about who he is as a professional. Obviously, Burt's a good, a great character actor, but he does look like there's a film on him at all time like you just rub your thumb on him and it'd be particularly sleazy in blood he's great in this and he's again perfect he's always eating something or (laughs) it's it's really it's pretty terrific i love the premise i wish it worked better there is still some charge to the visual the actual visual just being pulled down into a beach and it's it's not badly shot. Like they actually pull that effect off and, and make it kind of interesting. And, and the things that are doing it or that are under the beach kind of re- feel to me like an early run at tremors and that kind of. A yeah. Monster. And, and what oh, I think one of the things that captured my attention when I was a kid is the mystery of it. Like we all see a monster movie where, oh, a monster with tentacles pulls her in. But this one, you really just like the mystery of what the creature might look like is obviously it's budgetary because they they don't have the money to create a monster for every. But it's a good effect. People getting sucked down. It That effect works really well. And then it's like we don't really need the explanation all that much. It's creepy in and of itself. One thing we knew growing up as kids is that horror movies often took a while to get started. I don't know if people always know. I don't know if younger movie geeks really like adhere to that anymore. But we knew back in the day that for the first 20 some minutes of Friday the 13th, you might get one kill, but it's basically all just set up. And so we were kind of trained to be a little bit more patient. Maybe that's why junk like Blood Beach rates slightly high on our nostalgia scale, because uh, it, it is pretty dry and dull, but it also has some allure some mystery to it. The other uh, cast member that I wanted to point out real quick, because I love this guy, and he did not have the career that I wish he'd had. I thought he was so good. Otis Young, who was the third main actor in The Last Detail, uh, which is that great Robert Town, uh, Hal Ashby movie about Jack Nicholson, and it's Otis Young, are the two guys who are transporting Randy Quaid. And Otis Young was awesome. He was just, he's one of those guys who didn't quite ever totally break through, and this was very near the end of his film career. So it's... Uh, it's lovely to see him pop up and stuff. I wish he popped up in more, though. He, he was something else. Our next film actually surprised me, not because it's a particularly surprising or, or terribly well-made movie, but because I had no fucking idea before we started doing this that this is a sequel to Sam Peckinpah's Cross of Iron. I'm speaking about the film originally made in 1979, but released in the U.S. in 1981, Breakthrough. Breakthrough from the director of Folks, which we covered last year. It's Andrew V. McLaughlin. Who's a big macho dude. Like McLaughlin's movies are just all kind of swinging dick movies and, and enjoyable for that. Like he's good at what he does. But yeah, this is not the strongest of his movies. And and I'm a little confused by if it's more if it's meant to be an action film or a drama. No, it's definitely very scant on action breakthrough. And it is uh it's it's about a German sergeant who uh, plots to kill Hitler and the uh, American general. Uh, So uh, Richard Burton is the Nazi and Rod Steiger is the American. So between Richard Burton and Rod Steiger, you know you're in for something, some real subtle laid back acting. I'm just not sure what in 1979 there still was to offer from generic, predictable, stock footage laden World War II potboilers like this one. I have a terrific book that I, I found uh, last year that's just about the hard-drinking English actors. Oh, wait, no, no. You told me about this book. Go ahead. Yeah, it's this great. It's cool. nothing but stories about the incredible hard-drinking years of Burton, O'Toole, Oliver Reed, and Richard Harris. 
I don't think Richard Burton ever gave a fuck. I think that was part of what made him Richard Burton. I love the story about the, when he first started going out with Elizabeth Taylor and he just went to her house one afternoon while she was still married to Michael Todd and they were having an affair and uh, the phone rang. Richard Burton answered it drunk off his ass and it was Michael Todd. And he says, uh, what are you doing in my house? Burton answered, fucking your wife and hung the phone up. That's a dude who just doesn't care. And I wish that carried into the performance. But so often, Burton just looks like he is waiting to get off the set. And it's really disappointing. When it comes to appreciating actors from an era that predates your life, you need like a certain entry point. You know what I mean? Like Richard Burton or like a Montgomery Clift. I never had like an entry point. They're just well-regarded, talented actors that I just never feel any real connection to like I do to a Cary Grant, for example, you know, you and I have grown up in an era that is defined largely by method acting and by the, the rise of the method actor, and the more realistic stuff and acting got realistic at a certain point, And especially after the seventies. And, you know, we talked about Lawrence Olivier and the jazz singer, which I think is one of the most outrageously miscalibrated performances ever given. I think a lot of those guys read to us as ham bones because they were theatrical actors. They were trained to blow it to the back wall of the theater as opposed to be subtle on film. And I do think there was a sense of a divide between what I consider very theatrical acting and very real acting as a kid. And I did not respond as well to theatrical stuff. One thing that did stand out for me in Breakthrough, a supporting performance by good old Michael Parks. So there's something. Yeah, who's always good. Always. The next movie. Wow. I actually can't believe this next movie. You saw this when you were a kid because. Swear to God. I had never heard of this. I didn't even know this existed. This to me is one of those. This is not a discovery in the sense that I'm recommending you see it. It's a discovery in the sense I never knew anything like this had ever happened in front of a movie camera. And I'm not sure I'm any richer for it now. Uh, Scott, what is this film? It is a low budget family, quote unquote, comedy entitled Earthbound. Earthbound is from Sun Classics, uh, and again, we go back to these, we kind of know these production companies even from being kids because, you know, once a production shingle pops up three or four times in a young brain, they in remember. In Search of Noah's Ark. In Search of Noah's Ark, they did In Search of Historic Jesus, they did the Grizzly Adams series. Earthbound is about a very normal-looking family of aliens that comes to Earth, shacks up with an old man and his grandson in, in the old man's motel, and then eventually the government comes looking for them and then very unimpressive and telekinetic things take place. There is also a, a monkey who looks vaguely green that's supposed to be an alien. It is one of the more obscure films. I don't know if uh, it's ever been released on VHS in the States. Uh, little research indicates that it has been released on VHS in Canada. And I remember begging my sister... I wouldn't have been able to be allowed to go by myself. If I went with a friend or two, fine. If I went with my older sister, fine. But I couldn't go by myself. And I think I bugged my sister for a week. My sister held a grudge. When I took her to see something particularly awful, she held a grudge. It's terrible. It, even on the scale of, oh, it's just a low-budget family movie that's not aiming for very much. It's terrible. If you've ever looked at these special effects on a Sid and Marty Croft show and thought, man, that looks too good, then Earthbound is the movie for you. And you're right. The monkey who's been painted green, I, I've never seen a clearer case of animal abuse in a movie where that monkey does not look like it enjoyed any part of the painting process, and he just wants it over and done with. And if it feels like a uh, an extended TV pilot, uh, that's because it was a TV pilot that the studio passed on so the film was released uh and probably in very scattershot fashion again if the computer who wore tennis shoes is too ribald for your sense of humor this is right up your alley um this is the same director by the way you mentioned in search of noah's art same guy who directed that and hangar 18 which we uh covered earlier one thing that's very interesting that i did notice during our research is that uh, sun classics was originally a company sponsored by schick razors and aside from their very, uh, you know, low budget kind of in search of stuff, one of their mainstream films that they co-produced, co-financed was Louis Teague's Cujo. That's really weird. <laughs> yep. I can't even imagine what Stephen King film rights sold for back then. Yeah. All right. Well, speaking of Cujo, we now move to a horror film. Beat that. Beat that segue, Drew. What do you got? I am afraid of many things, Scott. But you know what? What? I fear no evil. Alexandria High School, class of 81. 
All the students are going to hell, except for Andrew. He sent them there. Fear no evil. It'll scare the devil out of you. Here again, like Blood Beach, I know this poster way more than I knew this film. Quick anecdote about this one. This goes back to the legendary issue of when your local video store didn't have a particular movie. It could have been, it could be Fear No Evil. It could have been Blood Beach. It could have been Prom Night. But if your local video store didn't have it, it instantly took on this mystique of, oh my goodness. So that if you had to drive or have your mom drive you an extra two miles to the other video store and you were able to say, oh my God, that's the cover. I saw that poster, Fear No Evil. You grab it, you take it home. It's got a couple of really cool gory bits and it's about a, a weird, freaky teenager who turns out to be the devil incarnate and it's clearly an omen ripoff and it's just not good. I love the the yearbook poster, like the, the idea that this kid and, you know, again, we talk about Stephen King, your his influence is just starting to creep into mainstream here because, you know, Carrie is what, 76, even by like 1980, King wasn't the publishing powerhouse he is. He'd written a few books. He, he was starting to become the juggernaut, but he was still writer, director. Frank Lalogia, who went on to do a very good film that Drew and I will talk, discuss briefly in a minute. Drew nailed it. It is 50% The Omen and 50% Carrie. Yeah, heavy-duty Carrie vibe, and clearly, like, it's it's meant to be the male Carrie. And this is interesting, because I don't think that we'd started to see the reverse of the nerd archetype yet. Revenge of the Nerds was a big moment in terms of changing the way nerds were treated on film, because nerds really weren't the heroes. Nerds were picked on and nerds were goofs and you look at like Greece and the way Eddie Deason was used in that and that's typically what nerds were when they showed up in movies they were the weirdo on the edge of things wow and that's not who you were supposed to identify with in a film so it was I think Carrie where the outsider uh, sort of archetype started to become the center of things and I think horror was was at the beginning of that and then it moved into comedy and then it moved into the mainstream but Clearly, this is Andrew is the one that everybody picks on. And the main reason that's a bad idea is because he's the Antichrist. Yeah, but we're one thing I don't get about this, Drew, and I, I've seen a, a few other reviews comment on it. Why, if he's the teenage devil, why is he a craven wuss? Well, clearly he's like a mutant in the X-Men world where he hasn't gotten his powers yet. Uh, it doesn't mesh. If he's if he's the devil... He shouldn't be a misfit. He should be kind of in control. I don't understand it. <laughs> it's the difference between David Seltzer as a writer and and at this point, Frank Lelogia as a writer. And he was young. He was a really young guy here. You know, I just recently rewatched the um, the new Blu-ray remaster of uh, Phantasm. And I was struck again by the, the fact that what I like about that film most is how it feels kind of like a nightmare and stuff doesn't always work. Yes. Part of that is inexperience on Coscarelli's part. Part of it is intentional. And I think it's an interesting, you can see when he's trying to do something, you can see when it's kind of an accident. Um, but Coscarelli clearly was, was still grappling with getting all of his muscles up and running as a filmmaker. And I love it for that. I love the fact that you can see him kind of struggling. I don't think that Lelogia is untalented and I don't think he's completely without the ability to do stuff. Fear no evil feels like, a uh, 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 first draft. Yeah, the result is not a very good film, but it shows some spark and some creativity. And the film that we were talking about that Frank Lelogia would go on to write and direct several years later is called Lady in White. And if you're looking for a very good ghost story to watch with the whole family, I would say maybe nine or ten and up. Lady in White is a fantastic family-friendly ghost story. But yeah, if you're a fan of, you want to see all the occult horror from this era, Fear No Evil certainly won't be the worst of them, but it, aside from a few interestingly creative, gory moments, it's not a very memorable horror film. Now, I mentioned earlier, by accident, I'm sure it's because it was bouncing around in my head already, but I mentioned The Computer Wore Tennis Shoes, which was directed by a guy named Robert Butler, who directed a little comedy, and I mean little comedy, that we are going to talk about next called Underground Aces. Robert Butler, uh, who would go on to direct probably thousand hours of television entertainment between TV movies and TV episodes, the guy might have directed more TV than anybody in the universe. But in 1984, he also directed an above average teen sex comedy called Up the Creek that we will get to uh, in a couple of years. But for now, 
Underground Aces, which plays kind of like a white version of Car Wash or a prototypical kind of police academy ensemble farce about a gang of oh-so-wacky parking lot attendants. If you've ever wondered why there are no hilarious ensemble comedies set against the electrifying backdrop of underground parking garages in downtown L.A., it's because that's a horrible idea. So you've got like Michael Winslow in the early stage of his career making terrible dog sounds for the most part in this. Dirk Benedict, Audrey Landers, T.K. Carter. How about Frank Gorshin doing his worst Ted Knight impression from Caddyshack? Oh, he's terrible. When Frank Gorshin went bad, he went really bad. Oh, uh, Jerry Orbach, the dad from Dirty Dancing. And Robert Hague's, who was Juan Epstein from Welcome Back, Cotter. And it's just not funny. And there's nothing more painful than a leaden farce. This is that mania again. And I don't like manic where it's not. There's a scene in this where... Honestly, they're they're trying to make it this giant scene that builds and builds and builds and builds involving bowling balls and staircases and the parking circle at the Beverly Plaza Hotel. And it's probably a 10 minute scene. Oh, my God. It's unbelievable how long it goes. We've talked about used cars and why it's great. There's this amazing sort of mechanical watch precision and the script constantly builds and in each sequence there's little gains and little um accomplishments and things accelerate in a way that's really interesting and here it's just like how many things can we throw at something at once and is that funny barely connected sketches that you might get a few chuckles here and there but it just feels like you know oh we got a parking garage and we're going to shoot a movie over the course of six nights i don't think there's going to be a cult resurgence of this particular film and in a weird instance of full circle i opened this episode as i always do with a discussion of things that had happened in that month i mentioned the hill street blues premiere also directed by robert butler wow all right so listen our last movie and we saved the best for last this week because Seriously, January 1981 was a ghost town. Yeah. Oh, and you know what? I never got to cover this because I thought we were going to have like a skimpy episode. And I had like this whole thing planned about how, oh, if you think January is dumping ground now, you should have seen it back then. But I think that aside from our final film, we've pretty much illustrated (laughs) that January 1981 was a dumping ground month. I mean, most of these movies, like I said, if you did get it locally, it was maybe for a week. These things ro- rolled in and out and barely played. So it was amazing when something did break through as a January release. And this next film has not only broken through, I would argue it's one of the genuine classics of horror cinema, one of the great 80s horror films, and instantly recognizable. You know it because of the gifs that have been generated it's by It's not it. a gif. It's a gif. It is the gateway film for Cronenberg fanatics. I would like to scan all of you in this room, one at a time. There are four billion people on Earth. 237 are scanners. They'll control your mind, conquer your will, manipulate your body like a toy. Self-destruct, five seconds. The pain begins. In your flesh. In your brain. Four seconds. You feel its power. Three seconds. The pressure. The pounding, the terror. Two seconds. You can't breathe. It chokes you. It destroys you. (laughs) One second. You begin to self-destruct. Experience the terrifying power of scanners. You pray it will end, and it will. Scanners, their thoughts can kill. This was the movie where, first of all, the, the Fangoria cover of the exploding head was instantly iconic. Oh my God. As soon as you saw it, it was like, okay, I don't know what the fuck this is, but I'm seeing it and I have to know more. It's literally one of the finest practical effects when they shot that take. I I have not done the history. I do not know if that was the first or 20th take, but when they got that take, they probably immediately went out for steak dinner because that is amazing art (laughs) and more than and it's not just the head exploding i think the makeup work in this film this is one of those movies when i loved a movie it would sink into my nightmares it would sink into just the way i thought about fantasy or science fiction or whatever genre it was and in this case those sequences where you have michael ironside and blue-eyed boring guy i i know steven lack but uh, face to face 
and they really are going at each other in this psychic war and veins are ripping up their arms. And you look at like Akira and what they did in animation. And it is an extension of these ideas that David Cronenberg realized in practical effects that were brand new. No one had ever done anything that looked like that or that had those ideas in it. One of my favorite things about Scanners, aside from it being like the the perfect entry point to the Cronenberg films that preceded and followed Scanners, I was probably 14 or 15 and I wasn't able to articulate it, but it spoke to me. His sci-fi spoke to me. And the great thing about Scanners is that if you think, oh, yeah, it's about a horror movie about a telekinetic guy who blows up people's heads. And if that's all you think it's about you're really going to enjoy Scanners because there's a lot more to it than just a guy blows up someone's head. There's a lot of it now that has kind of crept into pop culture and, and has been imitated and mimicked. I'm taking those speed pills of yours and I'm wearing your vibrating heat beads. And by riding your snake, not only have I shed 65 pounds in four days, but guess what? I found out I'm the devil and I will wash over the earth and its seas will run red with all the blood of all its sinners. I am reborn, and I've got you to thank, Jimmy Tango. <laughs> Sounds good. But talk is cheap. Scan me. And as a result, when you're watching it now, it's going to feel kind of familiar to you. You're going to you know this shape of film and you've seen it. And uh, it's not going to it's not going to be a groundbreaking storyline for you. But it, at the time, it was still a, a very new sort of uh, story shape. And I think for for Cronenberg, very personal. It's not even the top of, of that early run for me. Like I, I like the brood a little bit more. I certainly like Videodrome more. But man, there is no denying that Scanners has this brilliant visceral beauty to it that I, I think put him on the map and that image alone kind of made him infamous. It's a fun sci-fi chase thriller too. It's not just there's a handful of gory bits and, and scary ideas, but it's also just a, a nifty sci-fi concept that, that kind of evokes like Michael Crichton or maybe like early Dean Koontz in a way. I never knew that I was allowed to be afraid of my own body. And certainly the human body is a fucking horror movie 90% of the time. It's it's crazy that we work at all. And Yours definitely is. Mine. Oh mine. my god. I'm I might be 95% of the mine's time. Mine's more really of a I think I think mine's more of a, a like a gangster musical. Really? Yeah. Like Bugsy my body's more like Bugsy Malone, I think. Wow. This also for me was another kind of gateway drug because I love Patrick McGowan in this movie. He is a fucking whack job. And my favorite television show of all time is The Prisoner, the original run of The Prisoner. And it's because I think McGowan was given free reign to be McGowan. And he is a freak. This was a great introduction to that because he gets to play this guy who's supposed to be the voice of authority. And the more he talks, the more you realize this guy is gone. He is so out there. Of, of Cronenberg's early horror run that I suppose ended with The Fly, correct? Would you say that this is the most accessible to a, a newbie? Because you wouldn't start somebody on like Rabbit or The Brood, would you? Would if you I were going to start somebody, I'd probably start them on The Dead Zone because I think The Dead Zone's probably a little more accessible. I don't know. I would never pick a favorite Cronenberg film, but I, I, I might call The Dead Zone his most underrated. But I love that line. The ice is going to break. I just thought of this. Are we going to be cautious to include, for example, like all the Scanner sequels when they come out? No, we'll put them in. I, I Absolutely. If they came out theatrically, if they played theatrically, we'll, we'll include them. I'm not a fan of any of them. And it's one of those things. I don't know that this had to be a series. Yeah, And it's a shame that Cronenberg wasn't around to kind of steer it because I, his ideas are so interesting. Like I said, I just body horror is such a now, you know, kind of omnipresent. Lots of people have done body horror. It really felt new when we saw this stuff, the, the notion of being afraid of yourself and of what's in you and just your body might turn on you. Yeah. The, the scariest aspect is not because we'd all seen in zombie movies, you know, there's a lot of viscera and somebody might get pulled apart and their body is destroyed and they're very fragile, but that takes place kind of in the hyper reality of a zombie film. And in the Cronenberg films, 
the the like Drew said, the betrayal of our body or the destruction, the slow dissolution of our own body, our own organs is a prevalent theme in everything from the brood to dead ringers to the fly to this. And it's unsettling, but it's also very fascinating. If you've never seen Scanners, that's our pick of the month. I'm not even asking Drew for his consultation. I'm stating this are underground aces. <laughs> if you've never seen Scanners, it's like we should start calling these like the, the we won't tell anybody. It's a Criterion release, so you can watch it on Filmstruck. Or you could probably rent the Blu-ray or just rent it on Amazon for $4. And you don't even have to tell anybody you'd never seen it. Just pop up on Twitter like two days later and go, man, I love scanners. And then people will think you had always seen it. They don't know you just saw it. Movie Tricks by Scott Weinberg. Wow. I really, I, I feel like I just barely survived January 1981. So thank you guys for uh, for putting up with a crazy list of films this month. I think next month is actually a little bit little bit better we start to inch into the year but i'm excited because 1981 now that we've done all, all the kind of legwork and the and looking at what's coming and laying out what's in each month i'm really excited i've always been a big fan and proponent of 1982 i kind of forgot how much i enjoyed getting through 1981 the first time now uh, so far 1981 is proving a little bit more punishing to me than 1980 i am desperately looking forward to 1982 and i am dreading 1983 uh, I may just check out for 1983. We may have to get a guest host. It's a collective hallucination. It never occurred. We're going to sign off. We're going to thank every person who has left us a comment on Twitter. Every person who has left us a review on uh, iTunes. Every person who has supported our Patreon or has retweeted us or just supported us in general. In any fashion, even just listening. We love you. Guys, next time we are going to talk about some very diverse films. We're going to see Paul Newman. We're going to see William Hurt. We're going to see a sequel that is not a typical sequel, and we're going to get one of the meanest slasher films of the early 80s. So we'll see you back here in two weeks. Thanks, everybody. Take care. <laughs>